Chapter 6 You're wrong about everything, but so am I. Five hundred years ago, cartographers believed that California was an island. Doctors believed that slicing a person's arm open, or causing bleeding anywhere, could cure disease. Scientists believed that fire was made out of something called phlogiston. Women believed that rubbing dog urine on their face had anti-aging benefits. Astronomers believed that the sun revolved around the earth. When I was a little boy, I used to think mediocre was a kind of vegetable that I didn't want to eat. I thought my brother had found a secret passageway in my grandmother's house because he could get outside without having to leave the bathroom. Spoiler alert, there was a window. I also thought that when my friend and his family visited Washington, B.C., they had somehow traveled back in time when the dinosaurs lived, because after all, B.C. was a long time ago. As a teenager, I told everybody that I didn't care about anything, when the truth was I cared about way too much. Other people ruled my world without my even knowing. I thought happiness was a destiny and not a choice. I thought love was something that just happened, not something that you worked for. I thought being cool had to be practiced and learned from others rather than invented for oneself. When I was with my first girlfriend, I thought we would be together forever. And then, when that relationship ended, I thought I'd never feel the same way about a woman again. And then when I felt the same way about a woman again, I thought that love sometimes just wasn't enough. And then I realized that each individual gets to decide what is enough, and that love can be whatever we let it be. Every step of the way I was wrong. About everything. Throughout my life, I've been flat-out wrong about myself, others, society, culture, the world, the universe. Everything. And I hope that will continue to be the case for the rest of my life. Just as present Mark can look back on past Mark's every flaw and mistake, one day future Mark will look back on present Mark's assumptions, including the contents of this book, and notice similar flaws. And that will be a good thing, because that will mean I have grown. There's a famous Michael Jordan quote about him failing over and over and over again, and that's why he succeeded. Well... I'm always wrong about everything over and over and over again, and that's why my life improves. Growth is an endlessly iterative process. When we learn something new, we don't go from wrong to right. Rather, we go from wrong to slightly less wrong. And when we learn something additional, we go from slightly less wrong to slightly less wrong than that, and then to even less wrong than that, and so on. We are always in the process of approaching truth and perfection without actually ever reaching truth or perfection. We shouldn't seek to find the ultimate right answer for ourselves, but rather, we should seek to chip away at the ways that we're doing wrong today so that we can be a little less wrong tomorrow. When viewed from this perspective, personal growth can actually be quite scientific. Our values are our hypotheses. This behavior is good and important. That other behavior is not. Our actions are the experiments. The resulting emotions and thought patterns are our data. There is no correct dogma or perfect ideology. There is only what your experience has shown you to be right for you. And even then, that experience is probably somewhat wrong, too. And because you and I and everybody else all have differing needs and personal histories and life circumstances, we will all inevitably come to differing correct answers about what our lives mean and how they should be lived. My correct answer involves traveling alone for years on end, 
living in obscure places and laughing at my own farts. Or at least that was the correct answer up until recently. That answer will change and evolve, because I change and evolve. And as I grow older and more experienced, I chip away at how wrong I am, becoming less and less wrong each day. Many people become so obsessed with being right about their life that they never end up actually living it. A certain woman is single and lonely and wants a partner, but she never gets out of the house and does anything about it. A certain man works his ass off and believes he deserves a promotion, but he never explicitly says that to his boss. They're told that they're afraid of failure, of rejection, of someone saying no. But that's not it. Sure, rejection hurts, failure sucks. But there are particular certainties that we hold on to, certainties that we're afraid to question or let go of, values that have given our lives meaning over the years. That woman doesn't get out there and date because she would be forced to confront her beliefs about her own desirability. That man doesn't ask for the promotion because he would have to confront his beliefs about what his skills are actually worth. It's easier to sit in a painful certainty that nobody finds you attractive and nobody appreciates your talents than to actually test those beliefs and find out for sure. Beliefs of this sort, that I'm not attractive enough, so why bother, or that my boss is an asshole, so why bother, are designed to give us moderate comfort now by mortgaging greater happiness and success later on. They're terrible long-term strategies, yet we cling to them because we assume we're right, because we assume we already know what's supposed to happen. In other words, we assume we know how the story ends. Certainty is the enemy of growth. Nothing is for certain until it has already happened, and even then, it's still debatable. That's why accepting the inevitable imperfections of our values is necessary for any growth to take place. Instead of striving for certainty, we should be in constant search of doubt. Doubt about our own beliefs. Doubt about our own feelings. Doubt about what the future may hold for us unless we get out there and create it for ourselves. Instead of looking to be right all the time, we should be looking for how we're wrong all the time. Because we are. Being wrong opens us up to the possibility of change. Being wrong brings the opportunity for growth. It means not cutting your arm open to cure a cold or splashing dog piss on your face to look young again. It means not thinking mediocre as a vegetable and not being afraid to care about things. Because here's something that's weird but true. We don't actually know what a positive or negative experience is. Some of the most difficult and stressful moments of our lives also end up being the most formative and motivating. Some of the best and most gratifying experiences of our lives are also the most distracting and demotivating. Don't trust your conception of positive or negative experiences. All that we know for certain is what hurts in the moment and what doesn't. And that's not worth much. Just as we look back in horror at the lives of people 500 years ago, I imagine people 500 years from now will laugh at us and our certainties today. They will laugh at how we let our money and our jobs define our lives. They will laugh at how we were afraid to show appreciation for those who mattered to us most, yet heaped praise on public figures who didn't deserve anything. They will laugh at our rituals and superstitions, our worries and our wars. They will gawk at our cruelty. They will study our art and argue over our history. They will understand truths about us which none of us are yet aware. And they, too, will be wrong. Just less wrong than we were. Architects of Our Own Beliefs
Try this. Take a random person and put them in a room with some buttons to push. Then tell them that if they do something specific, some undefined something that they have to figure out, a light will flash on indicating that they've won a point. Then tell them to see how many points they can earn within a 30-minute period. When psychologists have done this, what happens is what you might expect. People sit down and start mashing buttons at random until eventually the light comes on to tell them they got a point. Logically, they then try repeating whatever they were doing to get more points, except now the light's not coming on. So they start experimenting with more complicated sequences. Press this button three times, then this button once, then wait five seconds, and ding, another point. But eventually that stops working. Perhaps it doesn't have to do with buttons at all, they think. Perhaps it has to do with how I'm sitting, or what I'm touching. Maybe it has to do with my feet. Ding, another point. Yeah, maybe it's my feet, and then I press another button. Ding! Generally, within 10 to 15 minutes, each person has figured out the specific sequence of behaviors required to net more points. It's usually something weird like standing on one foot or memorizing a long sequence of buttons pressed in a specific amount of time while facing a certain direction. But here's the funny part. The points really are random. There's no sequence. There's no pattern just a light that keeps coming on with a ding, and people doing cartwheels thinking that what they're doing is giving them points. Sadism aside, the point of the experiment is to show how quickly the human mind is capable of coming up with and believing in a bunch of bullshit that isn't real. And it turns out, we're all really good at it. Every person leaves that room convinced that he or she nailed the experiment and won the game. They all believe that they discovered the perfect sequence of buttons that earned them their points but the methods they come up with are as unique as the individuals themselves. One man came up with a long sequence of button pushing that made no sense to anyone but himself. One girl came to believe that she had to tap the ceiling a certain number of times to get points. When she left the room, she was exhausted from jumping up and down. Our brains are meaning machines. What we understand as meaning is generated by the association our brain makes between two or more experiences. We press a button and we see a light go on. We assume the button caused the light to go on. This, at its core, is the basis of meaning. Button, light. Light, button. We see a chair. We note that it's gray. Our brain then draws the association between the color, gray, and the object, chair, and forms meaning. The chair is gray. Our minds are constantly worrying, generating more and more associations to help us understand and control the environment around us. Everything about our experiences, both external and internal, generates new associations and connections within our minds. Everything from the words on this page to the grammatical concepts you use to decipher them, to the dirty thoughts your mind wanders into when my writing becomes boring or repetitive, each of these thoughts, impulses, and perceptions is composed of thousands upon thousands of neural connections, firing in conjunction, alighting your mind in a blaze of knowledge and understanding. But there are two problems. First, the brain is imperfect. We mistake things we see and hear. We forget things or misinterpret events quite easily. Second, once we create meaning for ourselves, our brains are designed to hold on to that meaning. We are biased toward the meaning our mind has made, and we don't want to let go of it. Even if we see evidence that contradicts the meaning we created, we often ignore it and keep on believing anyway. 
The comedian Emo Phillips once said, I used to think the human brain was the most wonderful organ in my body. Then I realized who was telling me this. The unfortunate fact is, most of what we come to know and believe is the product of the innate inaccuracies and biases present in our brains. Many, or even most of our values, are products of events that are not representative of the world at large, or are the result of a totally misconceived past. The result of all this? Most of our beliefs are wrong. Or, to be more exact, all beliefs are wrong. Some are just less wrong than others. The human mind is a jumble of inaccuracy. And while this may make you uncomfortable, it's an incredibly important concept to accept, as we'll see. The Dangers of Pure Certainty Erin sits across from me at the sushi restaurant and tries to explain why she doesn't believe in death. It's been almost three hours and she's eaten exactly four cucumber rolls and drunk an entire bottle of sake by herself. In fact, she's about halfway through bottle number two now. It's four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. I didn't invite her here. She found out where I was via the Internet and flew out to come find me. Again. She's done this before. You see, Erin is convinced that she can cure death, but she's also convinced that she needs my help to do it. But not my help in, like, a business sense. If she just needed some PR advice or something, that would be one thing. No, it's more than that. She needs me to be her boyfriend. Why? After three hours of questioning and a bottle and a half of sake, it still isn't clear. My fiancé was with us in the restaurant, by the way. Aaron thought it important that she be included in the discussion. Aaron wanted her to know that she was willing to share me and that my girlfriend, now wife, shouldn't feel threatened by her. I met Aaron at a self-help seminar in 2008. She seemed like a nice enough person. A little bit on the woo-woo, new-agey side of things, but she was a lawyer and had gone to an Ivy League school and was clearly smart. And she laughed at my jokes and thought I was cute, so, of course, knowing me, I slept with her. A month later, she invited me to uproot across the country and move in with her. This struck me as somewhat of a red flag, and so I tried to break things off with her. She responded by saying that she would kill herself if I refused to be with her. Okay, so make that two red flags. I promptly blocked her from my email and all my devices. This would slow her down, but not stop her. Years before I met her, Aaron had gotten into a car accident and nearly died. Actually, she had medically died for a few moments. All brain activity had stopped. But she had somehow miraculously been revived. When she came back, she claimed everything had changed. She became a very spiritual person. She became interested in and started believing in energy healing and angels and universal consciousness and tarot cards. She also believed that she had become a healer and an empath and that she could see the future. And for whatever reason, upon meeting me, she decided that she and I were destined to save the world together, to cure death, as she put it. After I'd blocked her, she began to create new email addresses, sometimes sending me as many as a dozen angry emails in a single day. She created fake Facebook and Twitter accounts that she used to harass me, as well as people close to me. She created a website identical to mine and wrote dozens of articles claiming that I was her ex-boyfriend and that I had lied to her and cheated her, that I had promised to marry her and that she and I belonged together. When I contacted her to take the site down, she said that she would take it down only if I flew to California to be with her. 
This was her idea of a compromise. And through all of this, her justification was the same. I was destined to be with her. That God had preordained it. That she literally woke up in the middle of the night to the voices of angels commanding that our special relationship was the harbinger of a new age of permanent peace on earth. Yes, she really told me this. By the time we were sitting in that sushi restaurant together, there had been thousands of emails. Whether I responded or didn't respond, replied respectfully or replied angrily, nothing ever changed. Her mind never changed. Her beliefs never budged. This had gone on for over seven years by then, and counting. And so it was, in that small sushi restaurant, with Aaron guzzling sake and babbling for hours about how she'd cured her cat's kidney stones with energy tapping, that something occurred to me. Aaron is a self-improvement junkie. She spends tens of thousands of dollars on books and seminars and courses. And the craziest part of all this is that Aaron embodies all the lessons she's learned to a T. She has her dream. She stays persistent with it. She visualizes and takes action and weathers the rejections and failures and gets up and tries again. She's relentlessly positive. She thinks pretty damn highly of herself. I mean, she claims to heal cats the same way Jesus healed Lazarus. Come the fuck on. And yet her values are so fucked that none of this matters. The fact that she does everything right doesn't make her right. There is a certainty in her that refuses to relinquish itself. She has even told me this in so many words, that she knows her fixation is completely irrational and unhealthy and is making both her and me unhappy. But for some reason it feels so right to her that she can't ignore it and she can't stop. In the mid-1990s, psychologist Roy Baumeister began researching the concept of evil. Basically, he looked at people who do bad things and at why they do them. At the time, it was assumed that people did bad things because they felt horrible about themselves, that is, they had low self-esteem. One of Baumeister's first surprising findings was that this was often not true. In fact, it was usually the opposite. Some of the worst criminals felt pretty damn good about themselves, and it was this feeling good about themselves, in spite of the reality around them, that gave them the sense of justification for hurting and disrespecting others. For individuals to feel justified in doing horrible things to other people, they must feel an unwavering certainty in their own righteousness, in their own beliefs and deservedness. Racists do racist things because they're certain about their genetic superiority. Religious fanatics blow themselves up and murder dozens of people because they're certain of their place in heaven as martyrs. Men rape and abuse women out of their certainty that they're entitled to women's bodies. Evil people never believe that they are evil. Rather, they believe that everyone else is evil. In controversial experiments now simply known as the Milgram experiments, named for the psychologist Stanley Milgram, researchers told normal people that they were to punish other volunteers for breaking various rules. And punish them they did sometimes escalating the punishment to the point of physical abuse. Almost none of the punishers objected or asked for explanation. On the contrary, many of them seemed to relish the certainty of the moral righteousness bestowed upon them by the experiments. The problem here is that not only is certainty unattainable, but the pursuit of certainty often breeds more and worse insecurity. Many people have an unshakable certainty in their ability at their job, or in the amount of salary they should be making. 
but that certainty makes them feel worse, not better. They see others getting promoted over them, and they feel slighted. They feel unappreciated and underacknowledged. Even a behavior as simple as sneaking a peek at your boyfriend's text messages or asking a friend what people are saying about you is driven by insecurity and that aching desire to be certain. You can check your boyfriend's text messages and find nothing, but that's rarely the end of it. Then you may start wondering if he has a second phone. You can feel slighted and stepped over at work to explain why you missed out on a promotion. But then that causes you to distrust your co-workers and second-guess everything they say to you and how you think they feel about you, which in turn makes you even less likely to get promoted. You can keep pursuing that special someone you're supposed to be with, but with each rebuffed advance and each lonely night, you only begin to question more and more what you're doing wrong. And it's in these moments of insecurity, of deep despair, that we become susceptible to an insidious entitlement believing that we deserve to cheat a little to get our way, that other people deserve to be punished, that we deserve to take what we want and sometimes violently. It's the backwards law again. The more you try to be certain about something, the more uncertain and insecure you will feel. But the converse is true as well. The more you embrace being uncertain and not knowing, the more comfortable you will feel in knowing what you don't know. Uncertainty removes our judgments of others. It preempts the unnecessary stereotyping and biases that we otherwise feel when we see somebody on TV, in the office, or on the street. Uncertainty also relieves us of our judgment of ourselves. We don't know if we're lovable or not. We don't know how attractive we are. We don't know how successful we could potentially become. The only way to achieve these things is to remain uncertain of them and be open to finding them out through experience. Uncertainty is the root of all progress and all growth. As the old adage goes, the man who believes he knows everything learns nothing. We cannot learn anything without first not knowing something. The more we admit we do not know, the more opportunities we gain to learn. Our values are imperfect and incomplete. And to assume that they are perfect and complete is to put us in a dangerously dogmatic mindset that breeds entitlement and avoids responsibility. The only way to solve our problems is to first admit that our actions and beliefs up to this point have been wrong and are not working. This openness to being wrong must exist for any real change or growth to take place. Before we can look at our values and prioritizations and change them into better, healthier ones, we must first become uncertain of our current values. We must intellectually strip them away, see their faults and biases, see how they don't fit in with much of the rest of the world, to stare our own ignorance in the face and concede. Because our own ignorance is greater than us all. Manson's Law of Avoidance Chances are you've heard some form of Parkinson's Law. Work expands so as to fill up the time available for its completion. You've also undoubtedly heard of Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Well, next time you're at a swanky cocktail party and you want to impress somebody, try dropping Manson's Law of Avoidance on them. The more something threatens your identity, the more you will avoid it. That means, the more something threatens to change how you view yourself, how successful or unsuccessful you believe yourself to be, 
how well you see yourself living up to your values, the more you will avoid ever getting around to doing it. There's a certain comfort that comes with knowing how you fit in the world. Anything that shakes up that comfort, even if it could potentially make your life better, is inherently scary. Manson's law applies to both good and bad things in life. Making a million dollars could threaten your identity just as much as losing all your money. Becoming a famous rock star could threaten your identity just as much as losing your job. This is why people are often so afraid of success. For the exact same reason they're afraid of failure. It threatens who they believe themselves to be. You avoid writing that screenplay you've always dreamed of because doing so would call into question your identity as a practical insurance adjuster. You avoid talking to your husband about being more adventurous in the bedroom because that conversation would challenge your identity as a good, moral woman. You avoid telling your friend that you don't want to see him anymore because ending the friendship would conflict with your identity as a nice, forgiving person. These are good, important opportunities that we consistently pass up because they threaten to change how we view and feel about ourselves. They threaten the values that we've chosen and have learned to live up to. I had a friend who, for the longest time, talked about putting his artwork online and trying to make a go of it as a professional, or at least semi-professional, artist. He talked about it for years. He saved up money, he even built a few different websites and uploaded his portfolio. But he never launched. There was always some reason the resolution on his work wasn't good enough, or he had just painted something better, or he wasn't in a position to dedicate enough time to it yet. Years passed, and he never did give up his real job. Why? Because despite dreaming about making a living through his art, the real potential of becoming an artist nobody likes was far, far scarier than remaining an artist nobody's heard of. At least he was comfortable with and used to being an artist nobody's heard of. I had another friend who was a party guy, always going out drinking and chasing girls. After years of living the high life, he found himself terribly lonely, depressed, and unhealthy. He wanted to give up his party lifestyle. He spoke with a fierce jealousy of those of us who were in relationships and more settled down than he was. Yet he never changed. For years he went on, empty night after empty night, bottle after bottle, always some excuse, always some reason he couldn't slow down. Giving up that lifestyle threatened his identity too much. The party guy was all he knew how to be. To give that up would be like committing psychological harakiri. We all have values for ourselves. We protect these values. We try to live up to them and we justify them and maintain them. Even if we don't mean to, that's how our brain is wired. As noted before, we're unfairly biased toward what we already know, what we believe to be certain. If I believe I'm a nice guy... I'll avoid situations that could potentially contradict that belief. If I believe I'm an awesome cook, I'll seek out opportunities to prove that to myself over and over again. The belief always takes precedence. Until we change how we view ourselves, what we believe we are and are not, we cannot overcome our avoidance and anxiety. We cannot change. In this way, knowing yourself or finding yourself can be dangerous. It can cement you into a strict role and saddle you with unnecessary expectations. It can close you off to inner potential and outer opportunities. I say, don't find yourself. I say, never know who you are, because that's what's keeping you striving and discovering. And it forces you to remain humble in your judgments and accepting of the differences in others.
kill yourself. Buddhism argues that your idea of who you are is an arbitrary mental construction and that you should let go of the idea that you exist at all. That the arbitrary metrics by which you define yourself actually trap you and thus you're better off letting go of everything. In a sense, you could say that Buddhism encourages you to not give a fuck. It sounds wonky, but there are some psychological benefits to this approach to life. When we let go of the stories we tell about ourselves, to ourselves, we free ourselves up to actually act and fail and grow. When someone admits to herself, you know, maybe I'm not good at relationships, then she is suddenly free to act and end her bad marriage. She has no identity to protect by staying in a miserable, crappy marriage just to prove something to herself. When a student admits to himself, you know, maybe I'm not a rebel, maybe I'm just scared, then he's free to be ambitious again. He has no reason to feel threatened by pursuing his academic dreams and maybe failing. When the insurance adjuster admits to himself, you know, maybe there's nothing unique or special about my dreams or my job then he's free to give that screenplay an honest go and see what happens. I have both some good news and some bad news for you. There is little that is unique or special about your problems. That's why letting go is so liberating. There's a kind of self-absorption that comes with fear based on an irrational certainty. When you assume that your plane is the one that's going to crash, or that your project idea is the stupid one everyone is going to laugh at, or that you're the one everyone is going to choose to mock or ignore, you're implicitly telling yourself, I'm the exception. I'm unlike everybody else. I'm different and special. This is narcissism, pure and simple. You feel as though your problems deserve to be treated differently, that your problems have some unique math to them that doesn't obey the laws of the physical universe. My recommendation? Don't be special. Don't be unique. Redefine your metrics in mundane and broad ways. Choose to measure yourself not as a rising star or an undiscovered genius. Choose to measure yourself not as some horrible victim or dismal failure. Instead, measure yourself by more mundane identities. A student, a partner, a friend, a creator. The narrower and rarer the identity you choose for yourself, the more everything will seem to threaten you. For that reason, define yourself in the simplest and most ordinary ways possible. This often means giving up some grandiose ideas about yourself, that you're uniquely intelligent or spectacularly talented or intimidatingly attractive or especially victimized in ways other people could never imagine. This means giving up your sense of entitlement and your belief that you're somehow owed something by this world. This means giving up the supply of emotional highs that you've been sustaining yourself on for years. Like a junkie giving up the needle, you're going to go through withdrawal when you start giving these things up. But you'll come out the other side so much better. How to be a little less certain of yourself Questioning ourselves and doubting our own thoughts and beliefs is one of the hardest skills to develop, but it can be done. Here are some questions that will help you breed a little more uncertainty in your life. Question number one. What if I'm wrong? A friend of mine recently got engaged to be married. The guy who proposed to her is pretty solid. He doesn't drink, he doesn't hit her or mistreat her. He's friendly and has a good job. But since the engagement, 
My friend's brother has been admonishing her nonstop about her immature life choices, warning her that she's going to hurt herself with this guy, that she's making a mistake, that she's being irresponsible. And whenever my friend asks her brother, What is your problem? Why does this bother you so much? He acts as though there is no problem, that nothing about the engagement bothers him, that he's just trying to be helpful and look out for his little sister. But it's clear that something does bother him. Perhaps it's his own insecurities about getting married. Perhaps it's a sibling rivalry thing. Perhaps it's jealousy. Perhaps he's just so caught up in his own victimhood that he doesn't know how to show happiness for others without trying to make them feel miserable first. As a general rule, we're all the world's worst observers of ourselves. When we're angry or jealous or upset, we're oftentimes the last ones to figure it out. And the only way to figure it out is to put cracks in our armor of certainty by consistently questioning how wrong we might be about ourselves. Am I jealous? If I am, then why? Am I angry? Is she right, and I'm just protecting my ego? Questions like these need to become a mental habit. In many cases, the simple act of asking ourselves such questions generates the humility and compassion needed to resolve a lot of our issues. But it's important to note that just because you ask yourself if you have the wrong idea doesn't necessarily mean that you do. If your husband beats the crap out of you for burning the pot roast and you ask yourself if you're wrong to believe he's mistreating you, well, sometimes you're right. The goal is merely to ask the question and entertain the thought at the moment, not to hate yourself. It's worth remembering that for any change to happen in your life, you must be wrong about something. If you're sitting there, miserable, day after day, then that means you're already wrong about something major in your life. And until you're able to question yourself to find it, nothing will change. Question number two. What would it mean if I were wrong? Many people are able to ask themselves if they're wrong, but few are able to go the extra step and admit what it would mean if they were wrong. That's because the potential meaning behind our wrongness is often painful. Not only does it call into question our values, but it forces us to consider what a different, contradictory value could potentially look and feel like. Aristotle wrote, It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Being able to look at and evaluate different values without necessarily adopting them is perhaps the central skill required in changing one's own life in a meaningful way. As for my friend's brother, his question to himself should be, What would it mean if I were wrong about my sister's wedding? Often, the answer to such a question is pretty straightforward, and some form of I'm being a selfish-slash-insecure-slash-narcissistic asshole. If he is wrong and his sister's engagement is fine and healthy and happy, there's really no way to explain his own behavior other than through his own insecurities and fucked-up values. He assumes that he knows what's best for his sister and that she can't make major life decisions for herself. He assumes that he has the right and responsibility to make decisions for her. He is certain that he's right and everyone else must be wrong. Even once uncovered, whether in my friend's brother or in ourselves, that sort of entitlement is hard to admit. It hurts. That's why few people ask the difficult questions. But probing questions are necessary in order to get at the core problems that are motivating his and our dickish behavior. Question number three. 
Would being wrong create a better or a worse problem than my current problem, for both myself and others? This is the litmus test for determining whether we've got some pretty solid values going on, or we're totally neurotic fuckwads taking our fucks out on everyone, including ourselves. The goal here is to look at which problem is better, because after all, as Disappointment Panda said, life's problems are endless. My friend's brother. What are his options? A. Continue causing drama and friction within the family, complicating what should otherwise be a happy moment, and damage the trust and respect he has with his sister, all because he has a hunch, some might call it an intuition, that this guy is bad for her. B. Mistrust his own ability to determine what's right or wrong for his sister's life and remain humble. Trust her ability to make her own decisions, and even if he doesn't, live with the results out of his love and respect for her. Most people choose option A. That's because option A is the easier path. It requires little thought, no second-guessing, and zero tolerance of decisions other people make that you don't like. It also creates the most misery for everyone involved. It's option B that sustains healthy and happy relationships built on trust and respect. It's option B that forces people to remain humble and admit ignorance. It's option B that allows people to grow beyond their insecurities and recognize situations where they're being impulsive or unfair or selfish. But option B is hard and painful, so most people don't choose it. My friend's brother, in protesting her engagement, entered into an imaginary battle with himself. Sure, he believed he was trying to protect his sister, but as we've seen, beliefs are arbitrary. Worse yet, they're often made up after the fact to justify whatever values and metrics we've chosen for ourselves. The truth is, he would rather fuck up his relationship with his sister than consider that he might be wrong, even though the latter could help him to grow out of the insecurities that made him wrong in the first place. I try to live with few rules, but one that I've adopted over the years is this. If it's down to me being screwed up, or everybody else being screwed up, it is far, far, far more likely that I'm the one who screwed up. I have learned this from experience. I have been the asshole acting out based on my own insecurities and flawed certainties more times than I can count. It's not pretty. That's not to say that there aren't certain ways in which most people are screwed up. And that's not to say that there aren't times when you'll be more right than most other people. That's simply reality. If it feels like it's you versus the world, chances are it's really just you versus yourself. Chapter 7 Failure is the Way Forward I really mean it when I say it. I was fortunate. I graduated college in 2007, just in time for the financial collapse and Great Recession and attempted to enter the worst job market in more than 80 years. Around the same time, I found out that the person who was subletting one of the rooms in my apartment hadn't paid any rent for three months. When confronted about this, she cried and then disappeared, leaving my other roommate and me to cover everything. Goodbye savings. I spent the next six months living on a friend's couch, stringing together odd jobs and trying to stay in as little debt as possible while looking for a real job. I say I was fortunate because I entered the adult world already a failure. I started out at rock bottom. That's basically everybody's biggest fear later on in life, 
when confronted with starting a new business or changing careers or quitting an awful job. And I got to experience it right out of the gates. Things could only get better. So yeah, lucky. When you're sleeping on a smelly futon and have to count coins to figure out whether you can afford McDonald's this week, and you've sent out 20 resumes without hearing a single word back, then starting a blog and a stupid internet business doesn't sound like such a scary idea. If every project I started failed, if every post I wrote went unread, I'd only be back exactly where I started. So why not try? Failure itself is a relative concept. If my metric had been to become an anarcho-communist revolutionary, then my complete failure to make any money between 2007 and 2008 would have been a raving success. But if, like most people, my metric had been to simply find a first serious job that could pay some bills right out of school, I was a dismal failure. I grew up in a wealthy family. Money was never a problem. On the contrary, I grew up in a wealthy family where money was more often used to avoid problems than solve them. I was again fortunate because this taught me at an early age that making money by itself was a lousy metric for myself. You could make plenty of money and be miserable, just as you could be broke and be pretty happy. Therefore, why use money as a means to measure my self-worth? Instead, my value was something else. It was freedom, autonomy. The idea of being an entrepreneur had always appealed to me because I hated being told what to do and preferred to do things my way. The idea of working on the Internet appealed to me because I could do it from anywhere and work whenever I wanted. I asked myself a simple question. Would I rather make decent money and work a job I hated, or play at Internet Entrepreneur and be broke for a while? The answer was immediate and clear for me. The latter. I then asked myself, if I try this thing and fail in a few years and have to go get a job anyway, will I have really lost anything? The answer was no. Instead of a broke and unemployed 22-year-old with no experience, I'd be a broke and unemployed 25-year-old with no experience. Who cares? With this value, to not pursue my own projects became the failure, not a lack of money, not sleeping on friends' and family's couches, which I continued to do for most of the next two years, and not an empty resume. The Failure-slash-Success Paradox When Pablo Picasso was an old man, he was sitting in a cafe in Spain, doodling on a used napkin. He was nonchalant about the whole thing, drawing whatever amused him in that moment, kind of the same way teenage boys draw penises on bathroom stalls. Except this was Picasso, so his bathroom stall penises were more like cubist-slash-impressionist awesomeness laced on top of faint coffee stains. Anyway, some woman sitting near him was looking on in awe. After a few moments, Picasso finished his coffee and crumpled up the napkin to throw away as he left. The woman stopped him. Wait, she said. Can I have that napkin you were just drawing on? I'll pay you for it. Sure, Picasso replied. Twenty thousand dollars. The woman's head jolted back as if he had just flung a brick at her. What? It took you like two minutes to draw that. No, ma'am, Picasso said. It took me over sixty years to draw this. He stuffed the napkin in his pocket and walked out of the cafe. Improvement at anything is based on thousands of tiny failures, and the magnitude of your success is based on how many times you failed at something.
If someone is better than you at something, then it's likely because she has failed at it more than you have. If someone is worse than you, it's likely because he hasn't been through all of the painful learning experiences you have. If you think about a young child trying to learn to walk, that child will fall down and hurt itself hundreds of times. But at no point does that child ever stop and think, Oh, I guess walking just isn't for me. I'm not good at it. Avoiding failure is something we learn at some later point in life. I'm sure a lot of it comes from our education system, which judges rigorously based on performance and punishes those who don't do well. Another large share of it comes from overbearing or critical parents who don't let their kids screw up on their own often enough and instead punish them for trying anything new or not preordained. And then we have all the mass media that constantly expose us to stellar success after success while not showing us the thousands of hours of dull practice and tedium that were required to achieve that success. At some point, most of us reach a place where we're afraid to fail, where we instinctively avoid failure and stick only to what is placed in front of us or only what we're already good at. This confines us and stifles us. We can be truly successful only at something we're willing to fail at. If we're unwilling to fail, then we're unwilling to succeed. A lot of this fear of failure comes from having chosen shitty values. For instance, if I measure myself by the standard, make everyone I meet like me, I will be anxious because failure is 100% defined by the actions of others, not by my own actions. I am not in control. Thus, my self-worth is at the mercy of judgments by others. Whereas, if I instead adopt the metric, improve my social life, I can live up to my value of good relations with others regardless of how other people respond to me. My self-worth is based on my own behaviors and happiness. Shitty values, as we saw in Chapter 4, involve tangible external goals outside of our control. The pursuit of these goals causes great anxiety, and even if we manage to achieve them, they leave us feeling empty and lifeless, because once they're achieved, there are no more problems to solve. Better values, as we saw, are process-oriented. Something like express myself honestly to others, a metric for the value honesty, is never completely finished. It's a problem that must continuously be re-engaged. Every new conversation, every new relationship brings new challenges and opportunities for honest expression. The value is an ongoing, lifelong process that defies completion. If your metric for the value success by worldly standards is buy a house and a nice car, and you spend 20 years working your ass off to achieve it, once it's achieved, the metric has nothing left to give you. Then say hello to your midlife crisis because the problem that drove you your entire adult life was just taken away from you. There are no other opportunities to keep growing and improving, and yet it's growth that generates happiness, not a long list of arbitrary achievements. In this sense, goals, as they are conventionally defined, graduate from college, buy a lake house, lose 15 pounds, are limited in the amount of happiness they can produce in our lives. They may be helpful when pursuing quick, short-term benefits, but as guides for the overall trajectory of our life, they suck. Picasso remained prolific his entire life. He lived into his 90s and continued to produce art up until his final years. Had his metric been become famous or make a buttload of money in the art world or paint 1,000 pictures, he would have stagnated at some point along the way. 
he would have been overcome by anxiety or self-doubt. He likely wouldn't have improved and innovated his craft in the ways he did decade after decade. The reason for Picasso's success is exactly the same reason why, as an old man, he was happy to scribble drawings on a napkin alone in a cafe. His underlying value was simple and humble, and it was endless. It was the value honest expression, and this is what made that napkin so valuable. Pain is part of the process. In the 1950s, a Polish psychologist named Kazimierz Dabrowski studied World War II survivors and how they'd coped with traumatic experiences in the war. This was Poland, so things had been pretty gruesome. These people had experienced or witnessed mass starvation, bombings that turned cities to rubble, the Holocaust, the torture of prisoners of war, and the rape and or murder of family members, if not by the Nazis, then a few years later by the Soviets. As Dabrowski studied the survivors, he noticed something both surprising and amazing. A sizable percentage of them believed that the wartime experiences they'd suffered, although painful and indeed traumatic, had actually caused them to become better, more responsible, and yes, even happier people. Many described their lives before the war as if they'd been different people then, ungrateful for and unappreciative of their loved ones, lazy and consumed by petty problems, entitled to all they'd been given. After the war, they felt more confident, more sure of themselves, more grateful and unfazed by life's trivialities and petty annoyances. Obviously, their experiences had been horrific, and these survivors weren't happy about having had to experience them. Many of them still suffered from the emotional scars the lashings of war had left on them. But some of them had managed to leverage those scars to transform themselves in positive and powerful ways. And they aren't alone in that reversal. For many of us, our proudest achievements come in the face of the greatest adversity. Our pain often makes us stronger, more resilient, more grounded. Many cancer survivors, for example, report feeling stronger and more grateful after winning their battle to survive. Many military personnel report a mental resilience gained from withstanding the dangerous environments of being in a war zone. Dabrowski argued that fear and anxiety and sadness are not necessarily always undesirable or unhelpful states of mind. Rather, they are often representative of the necessary pain of psychological growth. And to deny that pain is to deny our own potential. Just as one must suffer physical pain to build stronger bone and muscle, one must suffer emotional pain to develop greater emotional resilience, a stronger sense of self, increased compassion, and a generally happier life. Our most radical changes in perspective often happen at the tail end of our worst moments. It's only when we feel intense pain that we're willing to look at our values and question why they seem to be failing us. We need some sort of existential crisis to take an objective look at how we've been deriving meaning in our life and then consider changing course. You could call it hitting bottom or having an existential crisis. I prefer to call it weathering the shitstorm. Choose what suits you. And perhaps you're in that kind of place right now. Perhaps you're coming out of the most significant challenge of your life and are bewildered because everything you previously thought to be true and normal and good has turned out to be the opposite. That's good. That's the beginning. I can't stress this enough. 
But pain is part of the process. It's important to feel it. Because if you just chase after highs to cover up the pain, if you continue to indulge in entitlement and delusional positive thinking, if you continue to overindulge in various substances or activities, then you'll never generate the requisite motivation to actually change. When I was young, anytime my family got a new VCR or stereo, I would press every button, plug and unplug every cord and cable, just to see what everything did. With time, I learned how the whole system worked, and because I knew how it all worked, I was often the only person in the house who used the stuff. As is the case for many millennial children, my parents looked on as if I were some sort of prodigy. To them, the fact that I could program the VCR without looking at the instruction manual made me the second coming of Tesla. It's easy to look back at my parents' generation and chuckle at their technophobia. But the further I get into adulthood, the more I realize that we all have areas of our lives where we're like my parents with the new VCR. We sit and stare and shake our heads and say, But how? When really, it's as simple as just doing it. I get emails from people asking questions like this all the time, and for many years I never knew what to say to them. There's the girl whose parents are immigrants and saved for their whole lives to put her through med school. But now she's in med school and she hates it. She doesn't want to spend her life as a doctor, so she wants to drop out more than anything. Yet she feels stuck. So stuck, in fact, that she ends up emailing a stranger on the Internet, me, and asking him a silly and obvious question like, how do I drop out of med school? Or the college guy who has a crush on his tutor. So he agonizes over every sign, every laugh, every smile, every diversion into small talk, and emails me a 28-page novella that concludes with the question, How do I ask her out? Or the single mother whose now-adult kids have finished school and are loafing around on her couch, eating her food spending her money, not respecting her space or her desire for privacy. She wants them to move on with their lives. She wants to move on with her life. Yet she's scared to death of pushing her children away, scared to the point of asking, how do I ask them to move out? These are VCR questions. From the outside, the answer is simple. Just shut up and do it. But from the inside, from the perspective of each of these people, these questions feel impossibly complex and opaque. Existential riddles wrapped in enigmas packed in a KFC bucket full of Rubik's Cubes. VCR questions are funny because the answer appears difficult to anyone who has them and appears easy to anyone who does not. The problem here is pain. Filling out the appropriate paperwork to drop out of med school is a straightforward and obvious action. Breaking your parents' hearts is not. Asking a tutor out on a date is as simple as saying the words. Risking intense embarrassment and rejection feels far more complicated. Asking someone to move out of your house is a clear decision. Feeling as if you are abandoning your own children is not. I struggled with social anxiety throughout much of my adolescence and young adult life. I spent most of my days distracting myself with video games and most of my nights either drinking or smoking away my uneasiness. For many years, the thought of speaking to a stranger, especially if that stranger happened to be particularly attractive or interesting or popular or smart, felt impossible to me. I walked around in a daze for years asking myself dumb VCR questions. How? How do you just walk up and talk to a person? How can somebody do that? 
I had all sorts of screwed-up beliefs about this, like that you weren't allowed to speak to someone unless you had some practical reason to, or that women would think I was a creepy rapist if I so much as said, Hello. The problem was that my emotions defined my reality. Because it felt like people didn't want to talk to me, I came to believe that people didn't want to talk to me. And thus, my VCR question, How do you just walk up and talk to a person? Because I failed to separate what I felt from what was, I was incapable of stepping outside myself and seeing the world for what it was, a simple place where two people can walk up to each other at any time and speak. Many people, when they feel some form of pain or anger or sadness, drop everything and attend to numbing out whatever they're feeling. Their goal is to get back to feeling good again as quickly as possible, even if that means substances or deluding themselves or returning to their shitty values. Learn to sustain the pain you've chosen. When you choose a new value, you are choosing to introduce a new form of pain into your life. Relish it. Savor it. Welcome it with open arms. Then act despite it. I won't lie. This is going to feel impossibly hard at first. But you can start simple. You're going to feel as though you don't know what to do. But we've discussed this. You don't know anything. Even when you think you do, you really don't know what the fuck you're doing. So really, what is there to lose? Life is about not knowing and then doing something anyway. All of life is like this. It never changes, even when you're happy, even when you're farting fairy dust, even when you win the lottery and buy a small fleet of jet skis, you still won't know what the hell you're doing. Don't ever forget that. And don't ever be afraid of that. The do-something principle. In 2008, after holding down a day job for all of six weeks, I gave up the whole job thing to pursue an online business. At the time, I had absolutely no clue what I was doing, but I figured if I was going to be broke and miserable, I might as well be while working on my own terms. And at that time, all I seemed to really care about was chasing girls. So fuck it, I decided to start a blog about my crazy dating life. The first morning that I woke up self-employed, terror quickly consumed me. I found myself sitting with my laptop and realized for the first time that I was entirely responsible for all of my own decisions, as well as the consequences of those decisions. I was responsible for teaching myself web design, internet marketing, search engine optimization, and other esoteric topics. It was all on my shoulders now. And so I did what any 24-year-old who'd just quit his job and had no idea what he was doing would do. I downloaded some computer games and avoided work like it was the Ebola virus. As the weeks went on and my bank account turned from black to red, it was clear that I needed to come up with some sort of strategy to get myself to put in the 12- or 14-hour days that were necessary to get a new business off the ground. And that plan came from an unexpected place. When I was in high school, my math teacher, Mr. Packwood, used to say, If you're stuck on a problem, don't sit there and think about it. Just start working on it. Even if you don't know what you're doing, the simple act of working on it will eventually cause the right ideas to show up in your head. During that early self-employment period when I struggled every day, completely clueless about what to do and terrified of the results, or lack thereof, Mr. Packwood's advice started beckoning me from the recesses of my mind. I heard it like a mantra. Don't just sit there. Do something. The answers will follow. 
In the course of applying Mr. Packwood's advice, I learned a powerful lesson about motivation. It took about eight years for this lesson to sink in, but what I discovered over those long, grueling months of bombed product launches, laughable advice columns, uncomfortable nights on friends' couches, overdrawn bank accounts, and hundreds of thousands of words written, most of them unread, was perhaps the most important thing I've ever learned in my life. Action isn't just the effect of motivation. It's also the cause of it. Most of us commit to action only if we feel a certain level of motivation. And we feel motivation only when we feel enough emotional inspiration. We assume that these steps occur in a sort of chain reaction like this. Emotional inspiration, motivation, desirable action. If you want to accomplish something but don't feel motivated or inspired, then you assume you're just screwed. There's nothing you can do about it. It's not until a major emotional life event occurs that you can generate enough motivation to actually get off the couch and do something. The thing about motivation is that it's not only a three-part chain, but an endless loop. Inspiration, motivation, action. Inspiration, motivation, action, etc. Your actions create further emotional reactions and inspirations and move on to motivate your future actions. Taking advantage of this knowledge, we can actually reorient our mindset in the following way. Action, inspiration, motivation. If you lack the motivation to make an important change in your life, do something, anything really, and then harness the reaction to that action as a way to begin motivating yourself. I call this the do-something principle. After using it myself to build my business, I began teaching it to readers who came to me perplexed by their own VCR questions. How do I apply for a job? Or, how do I tell this guy I want to be his girlfriend? And the like. During the first couple of years I worked for myself, entire weeks would go by without my accomplishing much, for no other reason than that I was anxious and stressed about what I had to do, and it was too easy to put everything off. I quickly learned, though, that forcing myself to do something, even the most menial of tasks, quickly made the larger tasks seem much easier. If I had to redesign an entire website, I'd force myself to sit down and would say, okay, I'll just design the header right now. But after the header was done, I'd find myself moving on to other parts of the site. And before I knew it, I'd be energized and engaged in the project. The author Tim Ferriss relates a story he once heard about a novelist who had written over 70 novels. Someone asked the novelist how he was able to write so consistently and remain inspired and motivated. He replied, 200 crappy words per day. That's it. The idea was that if he forced himself to write 200 crappy words, more often than not the act of writing would inspire him, and before he knew it, he'd have thousands of words down on the page. If we follow the do-something principle, failure feels unimportant. When the standard of success becomes merely acting, when any result is regarded as progress and important, when inspiration is seen as a reward rather than a prerequisite, we propel ourselves ahead. We feel free to fail, and that failure moves us forward. The do-something principle not only helps us overcome procrastination, but it's also the process by which we adopt new values. If you're in the midst of an existential shitstorm and everything feels meaningless, 
if all the ways you used to measure yourself have come up short and you have no idea what's next. If you know that you've been hurting yourself chasing false dreams, or if you know that there's some better metric you should be measuring yourself with, but you don't know how, the answer is the same. Do something. That something can be the smallest viable action towards something else. It can be anything. Recognize that you've been an entitled prick in all of your relationships and want to start developing more compassion for others? Do something. Start simple. Make it a goal to listen to someone's problem and give some of your time to helping that person. Just do it once. Or promise yourself that you will assume that you are the root of your problems next time you get upset. Just try on the idea and see how it feels. That's often all that's necessary to get the snowball rolling the action needed to inspire the motivation to keep going. You can become your own source of inspiration. You can become your own source of motivation. Action is always within reach. And with simply doing something as your only metric for success, well, then even failure pushes you forward. Chapter 8 The Importance of Saying No in 2009, I gathered up all my possessions, sold them or put them into storage, left my apartment, and set off for Latin America. By this time, my little dating advice blog was getting some traffic, and I was actually making a modest amount of money selling PDFs and courses online. I planned on spending much of the next few years living abroad, experiencing new cultures and taking advantage of the lower cost of living in a number of developing countries in Asia and Latin America to build my business further. It was the digital nomad dream, and as a 25-year-old adventure seeker, it was exactly what I wanted out of life. But as sexy and heroic as my plan sounded, not all of the values driving me to this nomadic lifestyle were healthy ones. Sure, I had some admirable values going on, a thirst to see the world, a curiosity for people and culture, some old-fashioned adventure-seeking, but there also existed a faint outline of shame underlying everything else. At the time, I was hardly aware of it, but if I was completely honest with myself, I knew there was a screwed-up value lurking there, somewhere beneath the surface. I couldn't see it, but in quiet moments, when I was completely honest with myself, I could feel it. Along with the entitlement of my early twenties, the real traumatic shit of my teenage years had left me with a nice bundle of commitment issues. I had spent the past few years overcompensating for the inadequacy and social anxiety of my teenage years, and as a result I felt like I could meet anybody I wanted, be friends with anybody I wanted, love anybody I wanted, have sex with anybody I wanted. So why would I ever commit to a single person, or even a single social group, or single city, or country, or culture? If I could experience everything equally, then I should experience them all equally, right? Armed with this grandiose sense of connectivity to the world, I bounced back and forth across countries and oceans in a game of global hopscotch that lasted over five years. I visited 55 countries, made dozens of friends, and found myself in the arms of a number of lovers, all of whom were quickly replaced and some of whom who were already forgotten by the next flight to the next country. It was a strange life, replete with fantastic, horizon-breaching experiences, as well as superficial highs designed to numb my underlying pain. It seemed both so profound, yet so meaningless at the same time, and still does. 
Some of my greatest life lessons and character-defining moments came on the road during this period. But some of the biggest wastes of time and energy came during this period as well. Now, I live in New York. I have a house and furniture and an electric bill and a wife. None of it is particularly glamorous or exciting, and I like it that way. Because after all the years of excitement, the biggest lesson I took from my adventuring was this. Absolute freedom, by itself, means nothing. Freedom grants the opportunity for greater meaning, but by itself there is nothing necessarily meaningful about it. Ultimately, the only way to achieve meaning and a sense of importance in one's life is through a rejection of alternatives, a narrowing of freedom, a choice of commitment to one place, one belief, or, gulp, one person. This realization came to me slowly over the course of my years traveling. As with most excesses in life, you have to drown yourself in them to realize that they don't make you happy. Such was traveling with me. As I drowned in my 53rd, 54th, 55th country, I began to understand that while all of my experiences were exciting and great, few of them would have any lasting significance. Whereas my friends back home were settling down into marriages, buying houses, and giving their time to interesting companies or political causes, I was floundering from one high to the next. In 2011, I traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia. The food sucked. The weather sucked. Snow in May? Are you fucking kidding me? My apartment sucked. Nothing worked. Everything was overpriced. The people were rude and smelled funny. Nobody smiled and everyone drank too much. Yet I loved it. It was one of my favorite trips. There's a bluntness to Russian culture that generally rubs Westerners the wrong way. Gone are the fake niceties and verbal webs of politeness. You don't smile at strangers or pretend to like anything you don't. In Russia, if something is stupid, you say it's stupid. If someone is being an asshole, you tell him he's being an asshole. If you really like someone and are having a great time, you tell her that you like her and are having a great time. It doesn't matter if this person is your friend, a stranger, or someone you met five minutes ago on the street. The first week I found all of this really uncomfortable. I went on a coffee date with a Russian girl, and within three minutes of sitting down she looked at me funny and told me that what I'd just said was stupid. I nearly choked on my drink. There was nothing combative about the way she said it. It was spoken as if it were some mundane fact, like the quality of the weather that day or her shoe size. But I was still shocked. After all, in the West, such outspokenness is seen as highly offensive, especially from someone you just met. But it went on like this with everyone. Everyone came across as rude all the time, and as a result, my Western coddled mind felt attacked on all sides. Nagging insecurities began to surface in situations where they hadn't existed in years. But as the weeks wore on, I got used to the Russian frankness, much as I did the midnight sunsets and the vodka that went down like ice water. And then I started appreciating it for what it really was. Unadulterated expression. Honesty, in the truest sense of the word. Communication with no conditions, no strings attached, no ulterior motive, no sales job, no desperate attempt to be liked. Somehow, after years of travel, it was in perhaps the most un-American of places where I first experienced a particular flavor of freedom. The ability to say whatever I thought or felt without fear of repercussion. It was a strange form of liberation through accepting rejection. And as someone who had been starved of this kind of blunt expression most of his life, first by an emotionally repressed family life, then later by a meticulously constructed false display of confidence, 
I got drunk on it like, well, like it was the finest damn vodka I'd ever had. The month I spent in St. Petersburg went by in a blur, and by the end, I didn't want to leave. Travel is a fantastic self-development tool, because it extricates you from the values of your culture, and shows you that another society can live with entirely different values and still function and not hate themselves. This exposure to different cultural values and metrics then forces you to re-examine what seems obvious in your own life, and to consider that perhaps it's not necessarily the best way to live. In this case, Russia had me re-examining the bullshitty, fake-nice communication that is so common in Anglo culture, and asking myself if this wasn't somehow making us more insecure around each other, and worse at intimacy. I remember discussing this dynamic with my Russian teacher one day, and he had an interesting theory. Having lived under communism for so many generations with little to no economic opportunity and caged by a culture of fear, Russian society found the most valuable currency to be trust. And to build trust, you have to be honest. That means when things suck, you say so openly and without apology. People's displays of unpleasant honesty were rewarded for the simple fact that they were necessary for survival. You had to know whom you could rely on and whom you couldn't, and you needed to know quickly. But in the free West, my Russian teacher continued, there existed an abundance of economic opportunity. So much economic opportunity that it became far more valuable to present yourself in a certain way, even if it was false, than to actually be that way. Trust lost its value. Appearances and salesmanship became more advantageous forms of expression. Knowing a lot of people superficially was more beneficial than knowing a few people closely. This is why it became the norm in Western cultures to smile and say polite things, even when you don't feel like it. To tell little white lies and agree with someone whom you don't actually agree with. This is why people learn to pretend to be friends with people they don't actually like, to buy things they don't actually want. The economic system promotes such deception. The downside of this is that you never know, in the West, if you can completely trust the person you're talking to. Sometimes this is the case even among good friends or family members. There is such pressure in the West to be likable that people often reconfigure their entire personality depending on the person they're dealing with. Rejection makes your life better. As an extension of our positivity-slash-consumer culture, many of us have been indoctrinated with the belief that we should try to be as inherently accepting and affirmative as possible. This is a cornerstone of many of the so-called positive thinking books. Open yourself up to opportunities. Be accepting. Say yes to everything and everyone and so on. But we need to reject something. Otherwise, we stand for nothing. If nothing is better or more desirable than anything else, then we are empty and our life is meaningless. We are without values and therefore live our life without any purpose. The avoidance of rejection, both giving and receiving it, is often sold to us as a way to make ourselves feel better. But avoiding rejection gives us short-term pleasure by making us rudderless and directionless in the long term. To truly appreciate something, you must confine yourself to it. There's a certain level of joy and meaning that you reach in life only when you've spent decades investing in a single relationship, a single craft, a single career. And you cannot achieve those decades of investment without rejecting the alternatives. The act of choosing a value for yourself requires rejecting alternative values. If I choose to make my marriage the most important part of my life, that means I'm 
probably choosing not to make my cocaine-fueled hooker orgies an important part of my life. If I'm choosing to judge myself based on my ability to have open and accepting friendships, that means I'm rejecting trashing my friends behind their backs. These are all healthy decisions, yet they require rejection at every turn. The point is this. We all must give a fuck about something in order to value something. And to value something, we must reject what is not that something. To value X, we must reject non-X. That rejection is an inherent and necessary part of maintaining our values, and therefore our identity. We are defined by what we choose to reject. And if we reject nothing, perhaps in fear of being rejected by something ourselves, we essentially have no identity at all. The desire to avoid rejection at all costs, to avoid confrontation and conflict, the desire to attempt to accept everything equally and to make everything cohere and harmonize is a deep and subtle form of entitlement. Entitled people, because they feel as though they deserve to feel great all the time, avoid rejecting anything because doing so might make them or someone else feel bad. And because they refuse to reject anything, they live a valueless, pleasure-driven, and self-absorbed life. All they give a fuck about is sustaining the high a little bit longer to avoid the inevitable failures of their life, to pretend the suffering away. Rejection is an important and crucial life skill. Nobody wants to be stuck in a relationship that isn't making them happy. Nobody wants to be stuck in a business doing work they hate and don't believe in. Nobody wants to feel that they can't say what they really mean. Yet people choose these things all the time. Honesty is a natural human craving. But part of having honesty in our lives is becoming comfortable with saying and hearing the word, no. In this way, rejection actually makes our relationships better and our emotional lives healthier. Boundaries Once upon a time, there were two youngsters, a boy and a girl. Their families hated each other. But the boy snuck into a party hosted by the girl's family because he was kind of a dick. The girl sees the boy, and Angel sings so sweetly to her lady parts that she instantly falls in love with him. Just like that. And so, he sneaks into her garden, and they decide to get married the next freaking day, because, you know, that's totally practical, especially when your parents want to murder each other. Jump ahead a few days. Their families find out about the marriage and throw a shit fit. Mercutio dies. The girl is so upset that she drinks a potion that will put her to sleep for two days. But, unfortunately... The young couple hasn't learned the ins and outs of good marital communication yet, and the young girl totally forgets to mention something about it to her new husband. The young man therefore mistakes his new wife's self-induced coma for suicide. He then totally loses his marbles and he commits suicide, thinking he's going to be with her in the afterlife or some shit. But then she wakes up from her two-day coma, only to learn that her new husband has committed suicide. So she has the exact same idea and kills herself too. The end. Romeo and Juliet is synonymous with romance in our culture today. It is seen as the love story in English-speaking culture, an emotional ideal to live up to. Yet, when you really get down to what happens in the story, these kids are absolutely out of their fucking minds. And they just killed themselves to prove it. It's suspected by many scholars that Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet not to celebrate romance, but rather to satirize it to show how absolutely nutty it was. He didn't mean for the play to be a glorification of love. In fact, he meant it to be the opposite, a big flashing neon sign blinking, keep out, with police tape around it saying, do not cross. 
For most of human history, romantic love was not celebrated as it is now. In fact, up until the mid-19th century or so, love was seen as an unnecessary and potentially dangerous psychological impediment to the more important things in life, you know, like farming well and or marrying a guy with a lot of sheep. Young people were often forcibly steered clear of their romantic passions in favor of practical economic marriages that would yield stability for both them and their families. But today, we all get brain boners for this kind of batshit crazy love. It dominates our culture. And the more dramatic, the better. Whether it's Ben Affleck working to destroy an asteroid to save the Earth for the girl he loves, or Mel Gibson murdering hundreds of Englishmen and fantasizing about his raped and murdered wife while being tortured to death, or that elven chick giving up her immortality to be with Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, or stupid romantic comedies where Jimmy Fallon forgoes his Red Sox playoff tickets because Drew Barrymore has, like, needs or something. If this sort of romantic love were cocaine, then as a culture we'd all be like Tony Montana in Scarface, burying our faces in a fucking mountain of it, screaming, Say hello to my little friend! The problem is that we're finding out that romantic love is kind of like cocaine. Like, frighteningly similar to cocaine. Like, stimulates the exact same parts of your brain as cocaine. Like, gets you high and makes you feel good for a while, but also creates as many problems as it solves, as does cocaine. Most elements of romantic love that we pursue, the dramatic and dizzyingly emotional displays of affection, the topsy-turvy ups and downs, aren't healthy, genuine displays of love. In fact, they're often just another form of entitlement playing out through people's relationships. I know, that makes me sound like such a downer. Seriously, what kind of guy shits on romantic love? But hear me out. The truth is, there are healthy forms of love and unhealthy forms of love. Unhealthy love is based on two people trying to escape their problems through their emotions for each other. In other words, they're using each other as an escape. Healthy love is based on two people acknowledging and addressing their own problems with each other's support. The difference between a healthy and an unhealthy relationship comes down to two things. One, how well each person in the relationship accepts responsibility. And two, the willingness of each person to both reject and be rejected by their partner. Anywhere there is an unhealthy or toxic relationship, there will be a poor and porous sense of responsibility on both sides, and there will be an inability to give and or receive rejection. Wherever there is a healthy and loving relationship, there will be clear boundaries between the two people and their values, and there will be an open avenue of giving and receiving rejection when necessary. By boundaries, I mean the delineation between two people's responsibilities for their own problems. People in a healthy relationship with strong boundaries will take responsibility for their own values and problems, and not take responsibility for their partner's values and problems. People in a toxic relationship with poor or no boundaries will regularly avoid responsibility for their own problems and or take responsibility for their partner's problems. What do poor boundaries look like? Here are some examples. You can't go out with your friends without me. You know how jealous I get? You have to stay home with me. My coworkers are idiots. They always make me late to meetings because I have to tell them how to do their jobs. I can't believe you made me feel so stupid in front of my own sister. Never disagree with me in front of her again. I'd love to take that job in Milwaukee, but my mother would never forgive me for moving so far away. I can date you, but can you not tell my friend Cindy? She gets really insecure when I have a boyfriend and she doesn't. In each scenario, 
The person is either taking responsibility for problems or emotions that are not theirs, or demanding that someone else take responsibility for their problems or emotions. In general, entitled people fall into one of two traps in their relationships. Either they expect other people to take responsibility for their problems. I wanted a nice, relaxing weekend at home. You should have known that and cancelled your plans. Or they take on too much responsibility for other people's problems. She just lost her job again, but it's probably my fault because I wasn't as supportive of her as I could have been. I'm going to help her rewrite her resume tomorrow. Entitled people adopt these strategies in their relationships, as with everything, to help avoid accepting responsibility for their own problems. As a result, their relationships are fragile and fake, products of avoiding inner pain rather than embracing a genuine appreciation and adoration of their partner. This goes not just for romantic relationships, by the way, but also for family relationships and friendships. An overbearing mother may take responsibility for every problem in their children's lives. Her own entitlement then encourages an entitlement in her children, as they grow up to believe other people should always be responsible for their problems. This is why the problems in your romantic relationships always eerily resemble the problems in your parents' relationship. When you have murky areas of responsibility for your emotions and actions, areas where it's unclear who is responsible for what, whose fault is what, why you're doing what you're doing, you never develop strong values for yourself. Your only value becomes making your partner happy, or your only value becomes your partner making you happy. This is self-defeating, of course, and relationships characterized by such murkiness usually go down like the Hindenburg, with all the drama and fireworks. People can't solve your problems for you, and they shouldn't try, because that won't make you happy. You can't solve other people's problems for them either, because that likewise won't make them happy. The mark of an unhealthy relationship is two people who try to solve each other's problems in order to feel good about themselves. Rather, a healthy relationship is when two people solve their own problems in order to feel good about each other. The setting of proper boundaries doesn't mean you can't help or support your partner or be helped and supported yourself. You both should support each other, but only because you choose to support and be supported, not because you feel obligated or entitled. Entitled people who blame others for their own emotions and actions do so because they believe that if they constantly paint themselves as victims, eventually someone will come along and save them, and they will receive the love they've always wanted. Entitled people who take the blame for other people's emotions and actions do so because they believe that if they fix their partner and save him or her, they will receive the love and appreciation they've always wanted. These are the yin and yang of any toxic relationship, the victim and the saver, the person who starts fires because it makes her feel important, and the person who puts out fires because it makes him feel important. These two types of people are drawn strongly to one another, and they usually end up together. Their pathologies match one another perfectly. Often they've grown up with parents who each exhibit one of these traits as well. So their model for a happy relationship is one based on entitlement and poor boundaries. Sadly, they both fail in meeting the other's actual needs. In fact, their pattern of overblaming and overaccepting blame perpetuates the entitlement and shitty self-worth that have been keeping them from getting their emotional needs met in the first place. The victim creates more and more problems to solve, not because additional real problems exist, but because it gets her the attention and affection she craves. The saver solves and solves not because she actually cares about the problems, 
but because she believes she must fix others' problems in order to deserve attention and affection for herself. In both cases, the intentions are selfish and conditional, and therefore self-sabotaging, and genuine love is rarely experienced. The victim, if he really loved the Savior, would say, Look, this is my problem. You don't have to fix it for me. Just support me while I fix it myself. That would actually be a demonstration of love, taking responsibility for your own problems and not holding your partner responsible for them. If the saver really wanted to save the victim, the saver would say, Look, you're blaming others for your own problems. Deal with this yourself. And in a sick way, that would actually be a demonstration of love, helping someone solve their own problems. Instead, victims and savers both use each other to achieve emotional highs. It's like an addiction they fulfill in one another. Ironically, when presented with emotionally healthy people to date, they usually feel bored or lack chemistry with them. They pass on emotionally healthy, secure individuals because the secure partner's solid boundaries don't feel exciting enough to stimulate the constant highs necessary in the entitled person. For victims, the hardest thing to do in the world is to hold themselves accountable for their problems. They've spent their whole life believing that others are responsible for their fate. That first step of taking responsibility for themselves is often terrifying. For savers, the hardest thing to do in the world is to stop taking responsibility for other people's problems. They've spent their whole life feeling valued and loved only when they're saving somebody else. So letting go of this need is terrifying to them as well. If you make a sacrifice for someone you care about, it needs to be because you want to, not because you feel obligated or because you fear the consequences of not doing so. If your partner is going to make a sacrifice for you, it needs to be because he or she genuinely wants to, not because you've manipulated the sacrifice through anger or guilt. Acts of love are valid only if they are performed without conditions or expectations. It can be difficult for people to recognize the difference between doing something out of obligation and doing it voluntarily. So, here's a litmus test. Ask yourself, if I refused, how would the relationship change? Similarly, ask, if my partner refused something I wanted, how would the relationship change? If the answer is that a refusal would cause a blowout of drama and broken china plates, then that's a bad sign for your relationship. It suggests that your relationship is conditional, based on superficial benefits received from one another, rather than on unconditional acceptance of each other, along with each other's problems. People with strong boundaries are not afraid of a temper tantrum, an argument, or getting hurt. People with weak boundaries are terrified of those things, and will constantly mold their own behavior to fit the highs and lows of their relational, emotional roller coaster. People with strong boundaries understand that it's unreasonable to expect two people to accommodate each other 100% and fulfill every need the other has. People with strong boundaries understand that they may hurt someone's feelings sometimes, but ultimately they can't determine how other people feel. People with strong boundaries understand that a healthy relationship is not about controlling one another's emotions but rather about each partner supporting the other in their individual growth and in solving their own problems. It's not about giving a fuck about everything your partner gives a fuck about. It's about giving a fuck about your partner regardless of the fucks he or she gives. That's unconditional love, baby. How to Build Trust My wife is one of those women who spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. 
She loves to look amazing, and I'd love for her to look amazing, too, obviously. Nights before we go out, she comes out of the bathroom after an hour-long makeup-slash-hair-slash-clothes-slash-whatever-women-do-in-there session and asks me how she looks. She's usually gorgeous. Every once in a while, though, she looks bad. Maybe she tried to do something new with her hair or decided to wear a pair of boots that some flamboyant fashion designer from Milan thought were avant-garde. Whatever the reason, it just doesn't work. When I tell her this, she usually gets pissed off. As she marches back into the closet or the bathroom to redo everything and make us thirty minutes late, she spouts a bunch of four-letter words and sometimes even slings a few of them in my direction. Men stereotypically lie in this situation to make their girlfriends or wives happy, but I don't. Why? Because honesty in my relationship is more important to me than feeling good all the time. The last person I should ever have to censor myself with is the woman I love. Fortunately, I'm married to a woman who agrees and is willing to hear my uncensored thoughts. She calls me out on my bullshit too, of course, which is one of the most important traits she offers me as a partner. Sure, my ego gets bruised sometimes, and I bitch and complain and try to argue, but a few hours later I come sulking back and admit that she was right. And holy crap, she makes me a better person, even though I hate hearing it at the time. When our highest priority is to always make ourselves feel good or to always make our partner feel good, then nobody ends up feeling good and our relationship falls apart without our even knowing it. Without conflict, there can be no trust. Conflict exists to show us who is there for us unconditionally, and who is just there for the benefits. No one trusts a yes-man. If Disappointment Panda were here, he'd tell you that the pain in our relationship is necessary to cement our trust in each other and produce greater intimacy. For a relationship to be healthy, both people must be willing and able to both say no and hear no. Without that negation, without that occasional rejection, boundaries break down and one person's problems and values come to dominate the others. Conflict is not only normal, then. It's absolutely necessary for the maintenance of a healthy relationship. If two people who are close are not able to hash out their differences openly and vocally, then the relationship is based on manipulation and misrepresentation and it will slowly become toxic. Trust is the most important ingredient in any relationship, for the simple reason that without trust, the relationship doesn't actually mean anything. A person could tell you that she loves you, wants to be with you, would give up everything for you, but if you don't trust her, you get no benefit from those statements. You don't feel loved until you trust that the love being expressed towards you comes without any special conditions or baggage attached to it. This is what's so destructive about cheating. It's not about the sex. It's about the trust that has been destroyed as a result of the sex. Without trust, the relationship can no longer function. So it's either rebuild the trust or say your goodbyes. I often get emails from people who have been cheated on by their significant other but want to stay with that partner and are wondering how they can trust him or her again. Without trust, they tell me, the relationship has begun to feel like a burden like a threat that must be monitored and questioned rather than enjoyed. The problem here is that most people who get caught cheating apologize and give the it-will-never-happen-again spiel, and that's that, as if penises fell into various orifices completely by accident. Many cheaties accept this response at face value and don't question the values and fucks given by their partner, pun totally intended. They don't ask themselves whether those values and fucks make their partner a good person to stay with. 
They're so concerned with holding on to their relationship that they fail to recognize that it's become a black hole consuming their self-respect. If people cheat, it's because something other than the relationship is more important to them. It may be power over others. It may be validation through sex. It may be giving into their own impulses. Whatever it is, it's clear that the cheater's values are not aligned in a way to support a healthy relationship. And if the cheater doesn't admit this or come to terms with it, if he just gives the old, I don't know what I was thinking, I was stressed out and drunk and she was there, response, then he lacks the serious self-awareness necessary to solve any relationship problems. What needs to happen is that cheaters have to start peeling away at their self-awareness onion and figure out what fucked-up values cause them to break the trust of the relationship and whether they actually still value the relationship. They need to be able to say, you know what, I'm selfish. I care about myself more than the relationship. To be honest, I don't really respect the relationship much at all. If cheaters can't express their shitty values and show that those values have been overridden, then there's no reason to believe that they can be trusted. And if they can't be trusted, then the relationship is not going to get better or change. The other factor in regaining trust after it's been broken is a practical one, a track record. If someone breaks your trust, words are nice, but you then need to see a consistent track record of improved behavior. Only then can you begin trusting that the cheater's values are now aligned properly and the person really will change. Unfortunately, building a track record for trust takes time, certainly a lot more time than it takes to break trust. And during that trust-building period, things are likely to be pretty shitty. So both people in the relationship must be conscious of the struggle they're choosing to undertake. I use the example of cheating in a romantic relationship, but this process applies to a breach in any relationship. When trust is destroyed, it can be rebuilt only if the following two steps happen. 1. The trust breaker admits the true values that caused the breach and owns up to them. And 2. The trust breaker builds a solid track record of improved behavior over time. Without the first step, there should be no attempt at reconciliation in the first place. Trust is like a china plate. If you break it once, with some care and attention, you can put it back together again. But if you break it again, it splits into even more pieces, and it takes far longer to piece together again. If you break it more and more times, eventually it shatters to the point where it's impossible to restore. There are too many broken pieces, and too much dust. Freedom Through Commitment Consumer culture is very good at making us want more, more, more. Underneath all the hype and marketing is the implication that more is always better. I bought into this idea for years. Make more money, visit more countries, have more experiences, be with more women. But more is not always better. In fact, the opposite is true. We are actually often happier with less. When we're overloaded with opportunities and options, we suffer from what psychologists refer to as the paradox of choice. Basically, the more options we're given, the less satisfied we become with whatever we choose, because we're aware of all the other options we're potentially forfeiting. So if you have a choice between two places to live and pick one, you'll likely feel confident and comfortable that you made the right choice. You'll be satisfied with your decision. But if you have a choice among 28 places to live and pick one, the paradox of choice is that you'll likely spend years agonizing, 
doubting and second-guessing yourself, wondering if you really made the right choice, and if you're truly maximizing your own happiness. And this anxiety, this desire for certainty and perfection and success, will make you unhappy. So what do we do? Well, if you're like I used to be, you avoid choosing anything at all. You aim to keep your options open as long as possible. You avoid commitment. But while investing deeply in one person, one place, one job, one activity might deny us the breadth of experience we'd like, pursuing a breadth of experience denies us the opportunity to experience the rewards of depth of experience. There are some experiences that you can have only when you've lived in the same place for five years, when you've been with the same person for over a decade, when you've been working on the same skill or craft for half your lifetime. Now that I'm in my 30s, I can finally recognize that commitment, in its own way, offers a wealth of opportunity and experiences that would otherwise never be available to me, no matter where I went or what I did. When you're pursuing a wide breadth of experience, there are diminishing returns to each new adventure, each new person or thing. When you've never left your home country, the first country you visit inspires a massive perspective shift because you have such a narrow experience base to draw on. But when you've been to 20 countries, the 21st adds little. And when you've been to 50, the 51st adds even less. The same goes for material possessions, money, hobbies, jobs, friends, and romantic or sexual partners, all the lame superficial values people choose for themselves. The older you get, the more experienced you get, the less significantly each new experience affects you. The first time I drank at a party was exciting. The hundredth time was fun. The five hundredth time felt like a normal weekend, and the thousandth time felt boring and unimportant. The big story for me personally over the past few years has been my ability to open myself up to commitment. I've chosen to reject all but the very best people and experiences and values in my life. I shut down all my business projects and decided to focus on writing full-time. Since then, my website has become more popular than I'd ever imagined possible. I've committed to one woman for the long haul and, to my surprise, have found this more rewarding than any of the flings, trysts, and one-night stands I had in the past. I've committed to a single geographic location and doubled down on the handful of my significant, genuine, healthy friendships. And what I've discovered is something entirely counterintuitive, that there is a freedom and liberation in commitment. I've found increased opportunity and upside in rejecting alternatives and distractions in favor of what I've chosen to let truly matter to me. Commitment gives you freedom because you're no longer distracted by the unimportant and frivolous. Commitment gives you freedom because it hones your attention and focus, directing them toward what is most efficient at making you healthy and happy. Commitment makes decision-making easier and removes any fear of missing out. Knowing that what you already have is good enough, why would you ever stress about chasing more, more, more again? Commitment allows you to focus intently on a few highly important goals and achieve a greater degree of success than you otherwise would. In this way, the rejection of alternatives liberates us. Rejection of what does not align with our most important values, with our chosen metrics. Rejection of the constant pursuit of breadth without depth. 
Yes, breadth of experience is likely necessary and desirable when you're young. After all, you have to go out there and discover what seems worth investing yourself in. But depth is where the gold is buried. And you have to stay committed to something and go deep to dig it up. That's true in relationships, in a career, in building a great lifestyle, in everything. Chapter 9 And Then You Die Seek the truth for yourself, and I will meet you there. That was the last thing Josh ever said to me. He said it ironically, attempting to sound deep while simultaneously making fun of people who attempt to sound deep. He was drunk and high, and he was a good friend. The most transformational moment of my life occurred when I was 19 years old. My friend Josh had taken me to a party on a lake just north of Dallas, Texas. There were condos on a hill, and below the hill was a pool. And below the pool was a cliff overlooking the lake. It was a small cliff, maybe 30 feet high, certainly high enough to give you a second thought about jumping, but low enough that with the right combination of alcohol and peer pressure, that second thought could easily vanish. Shortly after arriving at the party, Josh and I sat in the pool together, drinking beers and talking as young, angsty males do. We talked about drinking and bands and girls and all the cool stuff Josh had done the summer since dropping out of music school. We talked about playing in a band together and moving to New York City, an impossible dream at the time. We were just kids. Is it okay to jump off that? I asked after a while, nodding toward the cliff over the lake. Yeah, Josh said. People do it all the time here. Are you going to do it? He shrugged. Maybe. We'll see. Later in the evening, Josh and I got separated. I had become distracted by a pretty Asian girl who liked video games, which to me, as a teenage nerd, was akin to winning the lottery. She had no interest in me, but she was friendly and happy to let me talk, so I talked. After a few beers, I gathered enough courage to ask her to go up to the house with me to get some food. She said, sure. As we walked up the hill, we bumped into Josh coming down. I asked him if he wanted food, but he declined. I asked him where I could find him later on. He smiled and said, Seek the truth for yourself, and I will meet you there. I nodded and made a serious face. Okay, I'll see you there, I replied, as if everyone knew exactly where the truth was and how to get to it. Josh laughed and walked down the hill toward the cliff. I laughed and continued up the hill toward the house. I don't remember how long I was inside. I just remember that when the girl and I came out again, everyone was gone and there were sirens. The pool was empty. People were running down the hill toward the shoreline below the cliff. There were others already down by the water. I could make out a couple guys swimming around. It was dark and hard to see. The music droned on, but nobody listened. Still not putting two and two together, I hurried down to the shoreline, gnawing on my sandwich, curious as to what everyone was looking at. Halfway down, the pretty Asian girl said to me, I think something terrible has happened. When I got to the bottom of the hill, I asked someone where Josh was. No one looked at me or acknowledged me. Everyone stared at the water. I asked again, and a girl started crying uncontrollably. That's when I put two and two together. It took scuba divers three hours to find Josh's body at the bottom of the lake. The autopsy would later say that his legs had cramped up due to dehydration from the alcohol, as well as to the impact of the jump from the cliff. It was dark out when he went in, the water layered on the night, black on black, 
No one could see where his screams for help were coming from. Just the splashes, just the sounds. His parents later told me that he was a terrible swimmer. I'd had no idea. It took me twelve hours to let myself cry. I was in my car driving back home to Austin the next morning. I called my dad and told him that I was still near Dallas and that I was going to miss work. I'd been working for him that summer. He asked, Why? What happened? Is everything all right? And that's when it all came out. The waterworks. The wails and the screams and the snot. I pulled the car over to the side of the road and clutched the phone and cried the way a little boy cries to his father. I went into a deep depression that summer. I thought I'd been depressed before, but this was a whole new level of meaninglessness. Sadness so deep that it physically hurt. People would come by and try to cheer me up, and I would sit there and hear them say all the right things and do all the right things, and I would tell them thank you and how nice it was of them to come over, and I would fake a smile and lie and say that it was getting better, but underneath I just felt nothing. I dreamed about Josh for a few months after that, dreams where he and I would have full-blown conversations about life and death, as well as about random, pointless things. Up until that point in my life, I had been a pretty typical middle-class stoner kid. Lazy, irresponsible, socially anxious, and deeply insecure. Josh, in many ways, had been a person I looked up to. He was older, more confident, more experienced, and more accepting of and open to the world around him. In one of my last dreams of Josh, I was sitting in a jacuzzi with him. Yeah, I know, weird. And I said something like, I'm really sorry you died. He laughed. I don't remember exactly what his words were, but he said something like, Why do you care that I'm dead when you're still so afraid to live? I woke up crying. It was sitting on my mom's couch that summer, staring into the so-called abyss, seeing the endless and incomprehensible nothingness where Josh's friendship used to be when I came to the startling realization that if there really is no reason to do anything, then there is also no reason to not do anything. That in the face of the inevitability of death, there is no reason to ever give in to one's fear or embarrassment or shame, since it's all just a bunch of nothing anyway. And that by spending the majority of my short life avoiding what was painful and uncomfortable, I had essentially been avoiding being alive at all. That summer, I gave up the weed and the cigarettes and the video games. I gave up my silly rock star fantasies and dropped out of music school and signed up for college courses. I started going to the gym and lost a bunch of weight. I made new friends. I got my first girlfriend. For the first time in my life, I actually studied for classes, gaining me the startling realization that I could make good grades if only I gave a shit. The next summer, I challenged myself to read 50 nonfiction books in 50 days, and then did it. The following year, I transferred to an excellent university on the other side of the country, where I excelled for the first time, both academically and socially. Josh's death marks the clearest before and after point I can identify in my life. Pre-tragedy, I was inhibited, unambitious, forever obsessed and confined by what I imagined the world might be thinking of me. Post-tragedy, I morphed into a new person, responsible, curious, hardworking. I still had my insecurities and my baggage, as we always do, but now I gave a fuck about something more important than my insecurities and my baggage, and that made all the difference. 
Oddly, it was someone else's death that gave me permission to finally live. And perhaps the worst moment of my life was also the most transformational. Death scares us. And because it scares us, we avoid thinking about it, talking about it, sometimes even acknowledging it, even when it's happening to someone close to us. Yet in a bizarre backwards way, death is the light by which the shadow of all of life's meaning is measured. Without death, everything would feel inconsequential, all experience arbitrary, all metrics and values suddenly zero. Something Beyond Ourselves Ernest Becker was an academic outcast. In 1960, he got his Ph.D. in anthropology. His doctoral research compared the unlikely and unconventional practices of Zen Buddhism and psychoanalysis. At the time, Zen was seen as something for hippies and drug addicts, and Freudian psychoanalysis was considered a quack form of psychology left over from the Stone Age. In his first job as an assistant professor, Becker quickly fell into a crowd that denounced the practice of psychiatry as a form of fascism. They saw the practice as an unscientific form of oppression against the weak and helpless. The problem was that Becker's boss was a psychiatrist, so it was kind of like walking into your first job and proudly comparing your boss to Hitler. As you can imagine, he was fired. So Becker took his radical ideas somewhere that they might be accepted. Berkeley, California. But this, too, didn't last long. Because it wasn't just his anti-establishment tendencies that got Becker into trouble. It was his odd teaching methods as well. He would use Shakespeare to teach psychology, psychology textbooks to teach anthropology, and anthropological data to teach sociology. He'd dress up as King Lear and do mock sword fights in class, and go on long political rants that had little to do with a lesson plan. His students adored him, but the other faculty loathed him. Less than a year later, he was fired again. Becker then landed at San Francisco State University, where he actually kept his job for more than a year. But when student protests erupted over the Vietnam War, the university called in the National Guard and things got violent. When Becker sided with the students and publicly condemned the actions of the dean, again, his boss being Hitler-esque and everything, he was once again promptly fired. Becker changed jobs four times in six years, and before he could get fired from the fifth, he got colon cancer. The prognosis was grim. He spent the next few years bedridden and had little hope of surviving. So Becker decided to write a book. This book would be about death. Becker died in 1974. His book, The Denial of Death, would win the Pulitzer Prize and become one of the most influential intellectual works of the 20th century, shaking up the fields of psychology and anthropology, while making profound philosophical claims that are still influential today. The denial of death essentially makes two points. One, humans are unique in that we're the only animals that can conceptualize and think about ourselves abstractly. Dogs don't sit around and worry about their career. Cats don't think about their past mistakes or wonder what would have happened if they'd done something differently. Monkeys don't argue over future possibilities, just as fish don't sit around wondering if other fish would like them more if they had longer fins. As humans, we're blessed with the ability to imagine ourselves in hypothetical situations, to contemplate both the past and the future, to imagine other realities or situations where things might be different.
And it's because of this unique mental ability, Becker says, that we all at some point become aware of the inevitability of our own death. Because we're able to conceptualize alternate versions of reality, we are also the only animal capable of imagining a reality without ourselves in it. This realization causes what Becker calls death terror, the deep existential anxiety that underlies everything we think or do. 2. Becker's second point starts with the premise that we essentially have two selves. The first self is the physical self, the one that eats, sleeps, snores, and poops. The second self is our conceptual self, our identity, or how we see ourselves. Becker's argument is this. We are all aware, on some level, that our physical self will eventually die, that this death is inevitable, and that its inevitability, on some unconscious level, scares the shit out of us. Therefore, in order to compensate for our fear of the inevitable loss of our physical self, we try to construct a conceptual self that will live forever. This is why people try so hard to put their names on buildings, on statues, on spines of books. It's why we feel compelled to spend so much time giving ourselves to others, especially to children, in the hopes that our influence, our conceptual self, will last way beyond our physical self that we will be remembered and revered and idolized long after our physical self ceases to exist. Becker called such efforts our immortality projects, projects that allow our conceptual self to live on way past the point of our physical death. All of human civilization, he says, is basically a result of immortality projects. The cities and governments and structures and authorities in place today were all immortality projects of men and women who came before us. They are the remnants of conceptual selves that ceased to die. Names like Jesus, Muhammad, Napoleon, and Shakespeare are just as powerful today as when those men lived, if not more so. And that's the whole point. Whether it be through mastering an art form, conquering a new land, gaining great riches, or simply having a large and loving family that will live on for generations, all the meaning in our life is shaped by this innate desire to never truly die. Religion, politics, sports, art, and technological innovation are the result of people's immortality projects. Becker argues that wars and revolutions and mass murder occur when one group of people's immortality projects rub up against another group's. Centuries of oppression and the bloodshed of millions have been justified as the defense of one group's immortality project against another's. But, when our immortality projects fail, when the meaning is lost, when the prospect of our conceptual self outliving our physical self no longer seems possible or likely, death terror, that horrible, depressing anxiety, creeps back into our mind. Trauma can cause this, as can shame and social ridicule as can, as Becker points out, mental illness. If you haven't figured it out yet, our immortality projects are our values. They are the barometers of meaning and worth in our life, and when our values fail, so do we, psychologically speaking. What Becker is saying, in essence, is that we're all driven by fear to give way too many fucks about something. Because giving a fuck about something is the only thing that distracts us from the reality and inevitability of our own death. And to truly not give a single fuck 
is to achieve a quasi-spiritual state of embracing the impermanence of one's own existence. In that state, one is far less likely to get caught up in various forms of entitlement. Becker later came to a startling realization on his deathbed, that people's immortality projects were actually the problem, not the solution. That, rather than attempting to implement, often through lethal force, their conceptual self across the world, people should question their conceptual self and become more comfortable with the reality of their own death. Becker called this the bitter antidote, and struggled with reconciling it himself as he stared down his own demise. While death is bad, it is inevitable. Therefore, we should not avoid this realization, but rather come to terms with it as best we can. Because once we become comfortable with the fact of our own death, the root terror and the underlying anxiety motivating all of life's frivolous ambitions, we can then choose our values more freely, unrestrained by the illogical quest for immortality, and freed from dangerous dogmatic views. The Sunny Side of Death I step from rock to rock, climbing steadily, leg muscles stretching and aching. In that trance-like state that comes from slow, repetitive physical exertion, I'm nearing the top. The sky gets wide and deep. I'm alone now. My friends are far below me taking pictures of the ocean. Finally, I climb over a small boulder and the view opens up. I can see from here to the infinite horizon. It feels as though I'm staring at the edge of the earth where water meets the sky, blue on blue. The wind screams across my skin. I look up. It's bright. It's beautiful. I'm at South Africa's Cape of Good Hope, once thought to be the southern tip of Africa and the southernmost point in the world. It's a tumultuous place, a place full of storms and treacherous waters, a place that's seen centuries of trade and commerce and human endeavor, a place, ironically, of lost hopes. There is a saying in Portuguese, Ele dobra o cabo da boa esperanca. It means, he's rounding the cape of good hope. Ironically, it means that the person's life is in its final phase, that he's incapable of accomplishing anything more. I step across the rocks toward the blue, allowing its vastness to engulf my field of vision. I'm sweating yet cold, excited yet nervous. Is this it? The wind is slapping my ears. I hear nothing, but I see the edge, where the rock meets oblivion. I stop and stand for a moment several yards away. I can see the ocean below lapping and frothing against cliffs stretching out for miles to either side. The tides are furious against the impenetrable walls. Straight ahead, it's a sheer drop of at least fifty yards to the water below. To my right, tourists are dotted across the landscape below, snapping photos and aggregating themselves into ant-like formations. To my left is Asia. In front of me is the sky, and behind me is everything I've ever hoped for and brought with me. What if this is it? What if this is all there is? I look around. I'm alone. I take my first step toward the edge of the cliff. The human body seems to come equipped with a natural radar for death-inducing situations. For example, the moment you get within about ten feet of a cliff edge, minus guardrail, a certain tension digs into your body. Your back stiffens, your skin ripples. Your eyes become hyper-focused on every detail of your environment. 
Your feet feel as though they are made of rock. It's as if there were a big invisible magnet gently pulling your body back to safety. But I fight the magnet. I drag the feet made of rock closer to the edge. At five feet away, your mind joins the party. You can now not only see the edge of the cliff, but down the cliff face itself, which induces all sorts of unwanted visualizations of tripping and falling and tumbling to a splashy death. It's really fucking far, your mind reminds you. Like, really fucking far. Dude, what are you doing? Stop moving. Stop it. I tell my mind to shut up and keep inching forward. At three feet, your body goes into full-scale red alert. You are now within an errant shoelace trip of your life ending. It feels as though a hefty gust of wind could send you sailing off into that blue bisected eternity. Your legs shake, as do your hands. As does your voice, in case you need to remind yourself you're not about to plummet to your death. The three-foot distance is most people's absolute limit. It's just close enough to lean forward and catch a glimpse of the bottom, but still far enough to feel as though you're not at any real risk of killing yourself. Standing that close to the edge of a cliff, even one as beautiful and mesmerizing as the Cape of Good Hope, induces a heady sense of vertigo and threatens to regurgitate any recent meal. Is this it? Is this all there is? Do I already know everything I will ever know? I take another micro-step, then another. Two feet now. My forward leg vibrates as I put the weight of my body on it. I shuffle on. Against the magnet, against my mind, against all my better instincts for survival. One foot now. I'm now looking straight down the cliff face. I feel a sudden urge to cry. My body instinctively crouches, protecting itself against something imagined and inexplicable. The wind comes in hailstorms. The thoughts come in right hooks. At one foot, you feel like you're floating. Anything but looking straight down feels as though you're part of the sky itself. You actually kind of expect to fall at this point. I crouch there for a moment, catching my breath, collecting my thoughts. I force myself to stare down at the water hitting the rocks below me. Then I look again to my right, at the little ants milling about the signage below me snapping photos, chasing tour buses, on the off chance that somebody somehow sees me. This desire for attention is wholly irrational, but so is all of this. It's impossible to make me out up here, of course, and even if it weren't, there's nothing that those distant people could say or do. All I hear is the wind. Is this it? My body shudders the fear becoming euphoric and blinding. I focus my mind and clear my thoughts in a kind of meditation. Nothing makes you present and mindful like being mere inches away from your own death. I straighten up and look out again and find myself smiling. I remind myself that it's all right to die. This willing and even exuberant interfacing with one's own mortality has ancient roots. The Stoics of ancient Greece and Rome implored people to keep death in mind at all times in order to appreciate life more and remain humble in the face of its adversities. In various forms of Buddhism, the practice of meditation is often taught as a means of preparing oneself for death while still remaining alive. Dissolving one's ego into an expansive nothingness, a 
achieving the enlightened state of nirvana, is seen as a trial run of letting oneself cross to the other side. Even Mark Twain, that hairy goofball who came in and left on Haley's Comet, said, The fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. Back on the cliff, I bend down, slightly leaning back. I put my hands on the ground behind me and gently lower myself onto my butt. I then gradually slide one leg over the edge of the cliff. There's a small rock jutting out of the cliffside. I rest my foot on it. Then I slide my other foot off the edge and put it on the same small rock. I sit there a moment, leaning back on my palms, wind ruffling my hair. The anxiety is bearable now, as long as I stay focused on the horizon. Then I sit up straight and look down the cliff again. Fear shoots back up through my spine, electrifying my limbs and laser-focusing my mind on the exact coordinates of every inch of my body. The fear is stifling at times, but each time it stifles me, I empty my thoughts, focus my attention on the bottom of the cliff below me, force myself to gaze at my potential doom, and then to simply acknowledge its existence. I was now sitting on the edge of the world, at the southernmost tip of hope, the gateway to the east. The feeling was exhilarating. I could feel the adrenaline pumping through my body. Being so still, so conscious, never felt so thrilling. I listened to the wind and watched the ocean, and look out upon the ends of the earth. And then I laugh with the light, all that it touches being good. Confronting the reality of our own mortality is important because it obliterates all the crappy, fragile, superficial values in life. While most people whittle their days chasing another buck, or a little bit more fame and attention, or a little bit more assurance that they're right or loved, death confronts all of us with a far more painful and important question. What is your legacy? How will the world be different and better when you're gone? What mark will you have made? What influence will you have caused? They say that a butterfly flapping its wings in Africa can cause a hurricane in Florida. Well, what hurricanes will you leave in your wake? As Becker pointed out, this is arguably the only truly important question in our life. Yet we avoid thinking about it. One, because it's hard. Two, because it's scary. Three, because we have no fucking clue what we're doing. And when we avoid this question, we let trivial and hateful values hijack our brains and take control of our desires and ambitions. Without acknowledging the ever-present gaze of death, the superficial will appear important, and the important will appear superficial. Death is the only thing we can know with any certainty, and as such, it must be the compass by which we orient all of our other values and decisions. It is the correct answer to all of the questions we should ask but never do. The only way to be comfortable with death is to understand and see yourself as something bigger than yourself, to choose values that stretch beyond serving yourself, that are simple and immediate and controllable and tolerant of the chaotic world around you. This is the basic root of all happiness. Whether you're listening to Aristotle or the psychologists at Harvard or Jesus Christ or the goddamn Beatles, 
they all say that happiness comes from the same thing. Caring about something greater than yourself. Believing that you are a contributing component in some much larger entity. That your life is but a mere side process of some great, unintelligible production. This feeling is what people go to church for. It's what they fight in wars for. It's what they raise families and save pensions and build bridges and invent cell phones for. This fleeting sense of being part of something greater and more unknowable than themselves. And entitlement strips this away from us. The gravity of entitlement sucks all attention inward toward ourselves, causing us to feel as though we are at the center of all of the problems in the universe that we are the ones suffering all of the injustices, that we are the one who deserves greatness over all others. As alluring as it is, entitlement isolates us. Our curiosity and excitement for the world turns in upon itself and reflects our own biases and projections onto every person we meet and every event we experience. This feels sexy and enticing and may feel good for a while and sells a lot of tickets, but it's spiritual poison. It's these dynamics that plague us now. We are so materially well-off, yet so psychologically tormented in so many low-level and shallow ways. People relinquish all responsibility, demanding that society cater to their feelings and sensibilities. People hold on to arbitrary certainties and try to enforce them on others, often violently, in the name of some made-up righteous cause. People high on a sense of false superiority, fall into inaction and lethargy for fear of trying something worthwhile and failing at it. The pampering of the modern mind has resulted in a population that feels deserving of something without earning that something, a population that feels they have a right to something without sacrificing for it. People declare themselves experts, entrepreneurs, inventors, innovators, mavericks, and coaches without any real-life experience. And they do this not because they actually think they are greater than everybody else. They do it because they feel that they need to be great to be accepted in a world that broadcasts only the extraordinary. Our culture today confuses great attention and great success, assuming them to be the same thing, but they are not. You are great, already, whether you realize it or not. Whether anybody else realizes it or not, and it's not because you launched an iPhone app or finished school a year early or bought yourself a sweet-ass boat, these things do not define greatness. You are already great because in the face of endless confusion and certain death, you continue to choose what to give a fuck about and what not to. This mere fact, this simple optioning for your own values in life, already makes you beautiful, already makes you successful, and already makes you loved. Even if you don't realize it, even if you're sleeping in a gutter and starving, you too are going to die. And that's because you too were fortunate enough to have lived. You may not feel this, but go stand on a cliff sometime, and maybe you will. Bukowski once wrote, We're all going to die. All of us. What a circus. That alone should make us love each other, but it doesn't. We are terrorized and flattened by life's trivialities. We are eaten up by nothing. Looking back on that night out by that lake when I watched my friend Josh's body getting fished out of the lake by paramedics, 
I remember staring into the black Texas night and watching my ego slowly dissolve into it. Josh's death taught me much more than I initially realized. Yes, it helped me to seize the day, to take responsibility for my choices, and to pursue my dreams with less shame and inhibition. But these were side effects of a deeper, more primary lesson. And the primary lesson was this. There is nothing to be afraid of, ever. And reminding myself of my own death repeatedly over the years, whether it be through meditation, through reading philosophy, or through doing crazy shit like standing on a cliff in South Africa, is the only thing that has helped me hold this realization front and center in my mind. This acceptance of my death, this understanding of my own fragility, has made everything easier. Untangling my addictions, identifying and confronting my own entitlement, accepting responsibility for my own problems, suffering through my fears and uncertainties, accepting my failures and embracing rejections. It has all been made lighter by the thought of my own death. The more I peer into the darkness, the brighter life gets, the quieter the world becomes, and the less unconscious resistance I feel to, well, anything. I sit there on the cape for a few minutes, taking in everything. When I finally decide to get up, I put my hands behind me and scoot back. Then, slowly, I stand. I check the ground around me, making sure there's no errant rock ready to sabotage me. Having recognized that I am safe, I begin to walk back to reality. Five feet. Ten feet. My body restoring itself with each step. My feet become lighter. I'd let life's magnet draw me in. As I step back over some rocks, back to the main path, I look up to see a man staring at me. I stop and make eye contact with him. Um, I saw you sitting on the edge over there, he says. His accent is Australian. The word there rolls out of his mouth awkwardly. He points toward Antarctica. Yeah, the view is gorgeous, isn't it? I am smiling. He is not. He has a serious look on his face. I brush my hands off on my shorts, my body still buzzing from my surrender. There's an awkward silence. The Aussie stands for a moment, perplexed, still looking at me, clearly thinking of what to say next. After a moment, he carefully pieces the words together. Is everything okay? How are you feeling? I pause for a moment, still smiling. Alive. Very alive. His skepticism breaks and reveals a smile in its place. He gives a slight nod and heads down the trail. I stand above, taking in the view, waiting for my friends to arrive on the peak. <laughs>